Father, I thank you so much for Claire. God, I thank you for um, the wisdom and experience and in theory as well that she has. And I pray, God, that as she shares it with us, we have ears to hear. And um, mm. just a really good discussion, God. Would this inspire us and give us ideas going forward about what like, our future post-college could look like as well? Mm. We pray that in the name of Jesus. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Right, well, I guess could you, I, I just thought I'd show you a picture of our house. So this is um, in Cotton Park. So... And um, we have been living there for 16 years. So we moved in. Um, I've just got, I've got a few little... I've got like our vision statement, which is um, something that, that... We've got a network of community houses in Bristol that are connected to Woodies and love Bristol. Um, so I'm one of the pastors at Woodies. Uh, and also, Greg and I, my husband and I, started a thing called Love Bristol. I don't know if you've heard the name or anything. So we're b- mainly based in Stokes Croft, and it's like a little church plant type thing with a that's also a charity. So um, we're not strictly speaking under Woodies, but we're under Woodies kind of uh, accountability-wise. But um, we're, we're kind of a bit independent, partly because. As soon as we kind of planted, we planted originally out of Woodlands Church, and um, but pretty much straight away we brought we bought a building down there to use as a community house and set up a charity to do it, and and it's it's just got its own independent finances and stuff. So I'm part of those two things, and um, but across those two organisations, there are there are about fifteen community houses sort of linked in, and they they are houses where people are living together. Um, and living together like an extended family, really, that's the, the vision for it. And um, it's, it can be any age or stage of life, though on the whole, to be honest, it tends to be 20, 30, even 40-year-olds who want to do it. And, yeah, so I've been living there 16 years. We were invited to lead, the, lead it as a family. Um, it had been set up three years before. It's in the old network, council, you know, network, Christian counselling organisation in Bristol. So, um, long time ago, before I was married, I actually was a counsellor for network counselling, and it was in that building, the headquarters were there, and they moved on, and then it became a community house without us, and then eventually we, we moved in. And So it's a bit weird, really, because... 30 years ago, that top room there at the front was what was my counselling room, and I hadn't got a husband then, and I was, um, I, you know, I've got, I've got six children now, one adopted, five, five of our own, and if anyone had said to me then, one day you're going to live here in this house, and you'll have six children, and you'll live with 18 people, and you'll be there for 16 years, <laughs> it would have been like, what? Can you imagine somebody it's saying that to you now? No, that's a, it's a semi. So where the big chimney line is, that's the thing. So it's a eleven bedrooms. You've got twenty four people in there. No, we've got eighteen. So um, there's twenty four in ADH, which is three doors up. There's another community house up there, and so in in the fifteen community houses that are linked to Woodies and Love Bristol, there are they range between eight people to twenty four, and uh, yeah. So they've all got different stories, really, the houses, how they came into being. But this one um, was originally owned by, is owned by the George Muller Foundation. So it used to be an orphanage in the 60s. And, um, and then they kind of, you know, orphanages aren't really a thing anymore, but they still have as part of their vision and values as a charity to, 
support family life and vulnerable people. So the co community houses that they own, they own three of the 15, um, they, they, it kind of fits with their charity vision and values that because uh, it's extended family and also there are often vulnerable people living amongst them. So one of the things that we have said um, as we've set up other community houses is we want them to have a place for somebody coming out of prison or out of addiction or that needs family that hasn't experienced it really that's kind of part of the thing so um yeah so that's that that we moved in 16 years ago when i um, moved in we were basically <laughs> we we were living in our own house we had three or four people living with us and so we kind of was we'd been talking about community since we first got married we'd been talking about buying, say, buying a house with our friends and moving in together and seeing what it was like to live as two families and all sorts of variations of that. And so we'd always talked about it, but then and we'd had sort of about 11 years of marriage by that point and kind of was, were, you know, thinking we'd like to do it. And then we were asked to do it and I just suddenly thought, I don't want to. So <laughs> I cried myself to sleep for a week. Um, thinking I don't want to, he had this lovely house in Redland, I didn't want to do it, and, and I sort of was, you know, felt God say, um, you don't have to, but if you do do it, there's something in it you can't really see. And I just had this sense that there was more to it that I would, and that it wouldn't be quite what I was imagining, which was this, which is probably what most people imagine when, when I say, oh, I live in community, I think, so many people, the most common response is, oh, I could never do that. And they often they feel like, oh, I need my own space and all that sort of thing. And I was imagining that it would be, you know, particularly um, stressful in that way. And, um, yeah, I didn't really want to do it. And then I sort of thought, well, okay, I'll say yes, then we'll do it for a year. And um, that was nearly 17 years ago. <laughs> and uh, and I, I kind of just actually was really surprised for the first six months that it was quite easy. And um, there, were, there was a group of people living there, and we moved our family in. So, and it was, it was just a bit of a surprise, though, you know, a sort of a rhythm of life that was fairly sort of straightforward. We would all eat together in the evenings, every evening, plus on Sundays, not on Saturdays. Everyone had a chore, and um, we had a, a house meeting on a Monday night where we would share and pray. And it, it wasn't that complicated. It was quite quickly we found that that it wasn't all mad, like loads of people all the time. It was actually like that between about five and seven in the evening, but everybody was working, so they were at the house. I was still, I could do counselling from the house, which is one of the things I do. And so it kind of just quickly settled into this fairly straightforward rhythm, and, and, it, and it worked. And, yeah, so uh, there's a little picture there. That's one of our Christmas dinners. <laughs> I thought I'd put that in because basically that is pretty standard number of people at our dinner table every night. I mean, we'd all dressed it. We don't normally have a tablecloth and candles, but that that is that's what it looks like, you know, for us to eat together. Um, so yeah, and we've had sixteen of those now. That's our Christmas dinner. Um, so yeah, I I just thought. Yeah, I've got a few little snippets I thought I'd say. So um, on Monday night, this night just just gone, we had a uh, at one of our house meetings, which we've now had every Monday night for the last 16 years. And in that time, we all sorts of things come up. So 
you know, sometimes we talk about the chores, which <laughs> is kind of the, the thing which is most commonly um, a bone of contention, you can imagine, can't you? And um, different people have different standards of what they think is reasonable and all that sort of thing. And, you know, we were talking about chores and then... Um, oh, I, thought I brought you one of these, actually. I thought you'd like, you could have a little read of them. This is a little... Um, uh, thing that we wrote about chores at Fruit Corner. We call our house Fruit Corner um, because it is a Muller house. <laughs> and somebody said to us, <laughs> you should call it Fruit Corner. And we thought, let's call it Fruit Corner rather than TCP, which is the name that people were calling it, 10 Cotton Park. And TCP is a horrible disinfectant. So anyway, you can read that afterwards. It's very light-hearted. It's just a kind of but it's fairly typical of the sort of conversation that you end up having around something like chores, which is that um, in community living, some of the things that we do communally for each other are they they're on one level they're just they have to be done and you have to think about them and you know somebody's got to do them. But on the other hand, they kind of have this kind of sense of this is part of our discipleship as well, and it's meaningful in the sense of how we're treating one another. And if you do or you don't do your chore, it has a, a kind of an effect and a, a, a sort of message in it about what you think about what we're doing here and whether it, it means something to you. So um, one of the great teachers on community life is Jean Vanier. I don't know if you study him at all, but you know, absolutely awesome human, really. But he has written a lot about the, the way that how you treat your, your house and your home, even to the point of, you know, if there's a vase of flowers on the table, is a message that says, this home is loved and you are loved because you're here sort of thing. And, you know, he's, he's amazing like that. So we just ended up having this long discussion about chores and how it really matters. And obviously some people just forget to do their chores and but it, it matters if you do or you don't. So we try and say that our values are very simple and stripped down. We don't want to have loads of rules you know, at all because this is a home and we want to work out what this can look like in the 21st century in the community. The, the, some of the sort of relatively small things about community living um, become fairly significant and we, we try and say that we don't want loads of rules, we want to have values and the values are around loving one another and, and what it actually looks like in practice, what does it look like to be a disciple of Jesus in the way that we treat, treat one another. So on Monday night anyway I was just saying that we, we ended up having this discussion, we got a new person in the house and he, gave his, he told us his testimony, it was lovely. And then he sort of said, posed the question, why are you here and what do you think you bring to community? And we all went round and we had a little chat about it. And it's just really interesting what comes up, really, in a discussion like that. And we ended up talking about, um, you know, how, what, what the power of vulnerability is and how, you know, um, in, if you're a Christian and you go to your, your home group once a week... Um, and what comes out in home groups, say, or in church life, compared to what comes out in community life, is just a mile apart. And um, even in really good small group settings where there's a lot of vulnerability, none of us really genuinely you know, want to show our... We might want to be vulnerable, as in I need this, but we wouldn't want to say 
be vulnerable in the way that actually I'm really uncaring, you know? I know I'm not am because I'm, I don't care about people in the way that I treat the house, say. And there's just something really unique that comes out in community life where you see people in all stages of their day, it's 24-7, that you, you find that discussions arise that become really, really genuine discipleship opportunities. So really common thing is... Um, we, we have, we've had a lot of these discussions over the years. People have gone to the cinema and then come back and talked about a film that they've seen. So there was one recently. It was, um, I can't remember what it, what it was, but it was really violent. And, and um, some people had gone to see it. I think it was the new, uh, the Pulp Fiction guy. What's oh, his name? Yeah, I think there's a new Tarantino film and it's quite violent because all his films are violent. And anyway, we ended up having this, discussion and it went on for about three hours from the dinner table through to the evening and people were talking we were just talking about what is it that shapes your values around what you see and what you watch and how you act and what you choose and it was absolutely brilliant and I just think that and the per you know the person who'd gone to see this film he'd gone to see it twice and I was, we were just talking about what happens to your heart when you watch a really violent film and and those sorts of things. And, and at the end of it, he sort of said, oh, it's so challenging. He's, and he said, I've really been made to think about this. And I just can't quite imagine that coming out in many settings because it was just around the dinner table as we were just talking about life. And those sort of things happen often. Or somebody will not have done something and or somebody's feeling really vulnerable and they you know they're closing off and going hiding off in their room and something has to happen in order to keep the community life going that just doesn't show up in normal discipleship practices so i guess if you guys are going to be i don't know you're going to be leading churches is that the plan <laughs> you're going to be discipling people you're going to be trying to work out how do you how do you make it real? So that because I think that you know, if you go to a home group, mostly you just share what you choose, and you really rarely share what um, you know. What is you might you might share like I was saying things that you are struggling with, but you wouldn't necessarily share things that are actually a bit humiliating to share. And there's not many people that see that side of you. And uh, yeah. And I think those sort of opportunities in community living are, are around that in some ways for discipleship things. So, so um, and out of that, I suppose all the different houses that we run, they often have a bit of a different emphasis. So historically for us, when we first started, um, a big thing for us was having people who were coming out of addiction or something of that sort living with us. We just felt like we had this lovely big house, we had this big family, um, if we could make room for one or two people. The very first person was somebody who was, had just come out of prison. He was called Russell and he was 18. He was staying with a friend of ours who'd given him a sofa to sleep on. And um, he was just coming into contact with Christianity. And she offered, she said he would come and help us decorate when we moved in. This was 17 years ago. And I ended up having loads of chats with him as he was sanding the floor and stuff. And eventually we said, do you want to come and live here? And we'd never done anything like that at this point. And so he came and moved in with us. And, um, and that was a real eye-opener <laughs> because he'd come from this violent drug addiction family. Um, and it was, 
you know, he still was in it, but he did become a Christian in the first year, and he, um, but there were some things that you just never could have predicted that happened in that interaction. I mean, one really stands out is we've got one of our sons, our middle son, Dexter, has got learning difficulties. He's absolutely brilliant. Um, um, but he is, as a lot of people with learning difficulties, slightly different boundaries to other people. <laughs> so he is, he's really friendly. Everyone loves him. He's 22 now. You've probably met him, have you? And, um, you know, he's, he's done really, really well. But he had this ability to sort of get past people's boundaries a little bit and he would befriend people he was always the first person who befriended everybody and um so he really sort of hooked on to russell and russell this sort of big tough guy is very sort of hench like that and you know dexy's this little little seven-year-old and um there was this one time when russell had his friend brought round his dog which was a pit bull terrier in, and he brought him around in the back garden and we're like oh there's russell with a pit bull that's really not something you particularly want in the heart of your family life and dexy happened to be in the garden when the dog arrived and um he's only seven and he just went up to russell and took his hand because he was a bit scared and russell afterwards just said to me i've never held a child's hand in my life and it totally sort of floored him you know and it just got beneath his his you know guard in quite a profound way and there was another um girl who came to live with us caroline who had you know numerous emotional issues and while she lived with us she took 14 overdoses in two years and um one of the things i was always really worried about was um you know would it be really bad for the kids to know that there was such a thing, you know, when you've got little kids, you don't want them to know that people want to kill themselves. <laughs> you don't even want them to know that it exists. And so I had this thing of like, always asking God, please protect the kids and everything. And, you know, in all those 14 times, she called the ambulance herself each time. She was quite a complicated person. And they would come and they would go up the first flight of stairs, across our family landing and up to the second flight of stairs, two or three ambulance men each time flashing per, you know, ambulance outside. Dexy's fascinated with that sort of thing. But not one in all those times did they ever see the ambulance people. So the kids would be around on the landings, and I can remember times when the ambulance men would go like this and up the stairs, and they would come out of their bedrooms, oblivious, and go off and do things. And I felt like God was kind of, you know, orchestrating it a little bit to protect them. There was one time when Russell really kicked off in the middle of the night, and he was... You know, he had a history of violence and um, he sort of smashed his room up a bit and one of our sons came out of his room and saw Russell really fronting up to Greg in anger and um, he was really frightened and I just remember sort of having this thing, oh gosh, is this okay? Are we damaging our kids and by putting them through this sort of thing? And so, I mean, that's probably been part of the... Hello. That's probably been part of an internal sort of processing thing that we've gone through over the years is, you know, is it okay to put your family through this sort of thing, you know? And it's an interesting discussion. I, I think that there's not a straightforward answer to it. So, hi, Can I ask a question? Yeah, you can butt in any time, and otherwise I'm just going to ramble on forever. So, they went, when they went in, they were between five and ten. So we've got five, so we had a 10-year-old, 
nine-year-old uh, twins who were eight and then a, um, a five-year-old. Uh, actually, they're more spread out than that. So, um, and now they are 26 down to 21. And what, if you were to ask them that question, what would, do you think they would tell I think on the whole they would say, you know, over the years they might have had a little moan every now and again, oh, I've got to share a bedroom and all these people telling me what to do all the time. You know, if that's one of the <laughs> things that they really were irritated by would be if one of the other adults in the house would tell them things, tell them off or something like that, and it feels weird to them. And there's this question of, you've got authority over me. So that would happen very occasionally. But on the whole, to be honest, um, they've had a lot of fun. And we've, we've seen numerous. We've lived with 180 people wow. yeah, in the last 16 years. So there is a turnover. Most people average two to three years because of the stage of life where they move in. So if you move in in your 20s, often the thing that will take you out of community might be getting married or something like that or whatever, and, or sometimes people move on and lead another community house, that's happened several times, so, um, or they might move to another one in the network because of something, or sometimes they fall in love with somebody in the house and it's very annoying because one of somebody always has to move out if somebody falls in love, even if it doesn't work out, because if it doesn't work out, it's just as bad as if it does work out. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's all, all part of the life. But I would say, on the whole, the kids would say that they've really, they've enjoyed it, and they've made loads of friends, and different ones of them responded to people in different ways, but we felt they've had loads of input and a broader input than they would have done from just us. And so they've had people's perspective, and, and also they've lived with people who have been in addiction, they've seen it firsthand, and they've got a very balanced view, all of them on that. None of them would ever have, you know, in the they're all fairly normal going through their teenage years not all of them are fully christian they're all believers but they don't really practice two of them don't three of them more so but um i would say that they they have just got a very balanced perspective on it all so i think on the whole it's worked fine and they're very good they have every, most people remark on them as being really amazingly good at at ease around adults and a broad spectrum of people so I think it is, has really worked, and um, why it has worked is possibly due to a sort of an, uh, an attitude that we have that is that we're fair, we're not uptight or controlling people, and I think um, <laughs> I think possibly that really helps in community. So I was going to say something about that in a little bit, but. Um, because I think that one of the things, the buttons that is most commonly and profoundly pressed in community is your desire to control everything. And I think most human beings want to control every single thing they can possibly get their hands on <laughs> about their own life. And, you know, I just think we're compulsive controllers. Even I'm quite a laid-back person, but I can see that in community... I'm constantly having that button pressed in a way that, you know, other people don't, me and my sister who doesn't live in community doesn't even have to think about some of the things. Like, for example, um, I'm, not super, I'm not super tidy, but I do really like it nice. I'm quite a visual person, so it really matters to me that it looks nice around the place. And it's almost never as tidy as I would have it, almost never. You know, only maybe over Christmas when everyone goes home, <laughs> I tidy it up, and then it's just nice for two or three days. And 
um, that is that's one thing. So I'm I'm really not a tidy freak. I'm quite you know I I'm fairly average I'd say, but it's quite hard if it's never nice because there's just too many people and standards are too broad and people are too oblivious and some people are really oblivious. Um, so that's one thing. And another aspect of that is, I don't know if you would relate to this yet, it depends on where you are at with having your own places, but you know that thing is if you have, your, have, have a room in a shared house or if you're in halls or whatever it is and your parents come to visit you, your instinct is to tidy up for them when they come because you kind of want it to look like you're in control of your life. Do you relate to that at all? You know, so you sort of slightly, if somebody's coming to visit, you're just like, oh, I'm going to tidy it up, and, you know, and then they'll be a little bit impressed. And, um, and I think that's fairly normal, that you want people to come into your house and think that you're not d t dysfunctional. And so one of the things that happens is when we live with 18 people, their parents frequently come and visit, so there's 10 of them, and every single time their parents come and visit, whoever they are, even the most slovenly of them, tidies up their room. And, yeah, they will bring their parents down through, you know, through the house. And it might be really messy in the corridors, really messy because they've dumped stuff outside their rooms, really messy in the lounges or the kitchen nobody's washed up or whatever it is. And they, they don't take responsibility for that because their bedroom is the bit that they sort of see. So that's the sort of thing that shows me all... I have got some, you know, I'm not totally relaxed about this stuff. And it does, <clears throat> it does sort of press my buttons. So <clears throat> that's one of the things I just think actually it's really interesting that even for somebody who I, you know, is a re quite a relaxed person, not very stressy, not particularly anxious person, even so, I can feel that living in community always is challenging that part of me that wants to just have everything just so how I would like it. And I just have to let go of it. And it's, it's challenging. And there's loads of other areas, you know, around, you know, ha um, community living that similarly do that. But it's just interesting that for me is one of them. <clears throat> Greg would say that he probably wouldn't feel quite the same as that, but it's like your stuff, you know, people borrowing your stuff. That's another thing that in community because we're living as extended family and we haven't got the only zone that is your own is your bedroom so all the communal areas are all communal the washing area the washing machines the tool room everything and your stuff just because people are particularly younger people they are a bit oblivious they borrow things they don't put it back they borrow it they break it they don't think to um mend it because they're just a bit oblivious and so all those things slightly you know the material side of life is is challenging in community so you know it's you know here i am who you know i've been married 30 years next year and i'm i've got a bedroom and a store cupboard you know and um <laughs> yeah yeah but so in terms of you know probably all of your parents, maybe, we don't want to make any assumptions, have got a house and spare bedrooms and the wardrobes in the spare bedrooms are full up because they don't know where to put them and a garage and a loft and everything and it's all, you know, so we've had to learn to live with sort of constrict those things and that, that's been interesting, you know, so. Hmm, where should I go next? <laughs> Say, ask me some questions if you'd like to. Um, 
absolutely fine. One of the things that, um, yeah, on the whole, I sense a sort of boundary question in there. <laughs> oh, boundary. The boundary word. So if you look at my, look, look here you are down here. Responsible. It's more for yeah. how would I cope with switching off? Yeah. Okay. So I'm an introvert. You might not uh, think that necessarily, but I I am an introvert. So my in my in terms of <laughs> getting my energy, mm. I definitely like my own space to be on my own. And so um, you know, move, that's why moving into community, I was a bit like, oh, you know, I'll try it for a year. And what I have found is that. Um, is that there is a way to live in community and to keep yourself sane. And, and to be honest, it's not to do with uh, rigid boundaries. It, it, it really isn't. And the more you lean on rigid boundaries to keep your sanity, I think the more bound up we can be. Now, I, you know, I do understand the point of boundaries, and I think they're, they are really important. But I feel like... We've slightly, we, our problem in kind of white Western Christianity is not um, that uh, we haven't got enough boundaries. I think we're saying no all the time. Sometimes people say, oh, everyone says yes too much and they're all burnt out. I just don't know if that's really true. I feel like I meet no more than yes all the time. You know, most people, if you said to them, could you have somebody come and live with you? you know, who's struggling, they'd be like, oh, I don't think I can cope with that at the moment. It's oh, not right. It's not sensible for me to, you know, that would burn me out. And You know, that is people's instinct. So that is not where we've got a problem. <laughs> I think people have learned how to make boundaries very easily. And my question really is, you know, around that kind of stuff is, well, what does it look like to... Okay, what does it really look like to, to be radical in our hospitality, for example? You know, this stuff from Jesus here. Mm. You know, I was hungry, I was thirsty, you gave me a drink, I was homeless, you gave me a room, I was shivering, you gave me clothes, I was sick, you stopped to visit, I was in prison, you came to me. And, you know, he, he sort of says, whenever you did one of these things to someone overlooked or ignored, that was me, you did it to me. You know, what do we think that really means? I mean, we have put so many boundaries around doing that sort of thing that we might give an evening at the crisis centre and we might give a bit of money through Oxfam or something like that, but we're not really doing what that is. And if Jesus calls us into that kind of lifestyle, I think we have to ask ourselves, what does it really look like? And um, so, I mean, you originally asked the question, what's it like living with people who, who you're ministering to or you're leading as a church leader? I think it's nothing. It's a no big deal. I think, to me, having done... 16 years of it, it's totally fine. You know, it's challenging in that they see me warts and all. They see me in my dressing gown. They see me when I'm irritated. They see me, and so, you know, they see all of that. They see me shouting at the kids, which is, you know, that all those things, or me and Greg, if we want to have an argument, it's really hard to have an argument in community. <laughs> it kind of makes you think whether it's worth having one, which is interesting, because apparently more divorces happen in detached houses which is interesting. <laughs> um, I just think it does... So, so it, it's challenging in that people see me, but I think that the opportunities for discipleship are just huge. Hello. And, um, and I have seen, out of those 180 people that we've been living with all this time, oh yeah, <laughs> we're just in the middle of a rambling discussion, so... <laughs> um, 
I think it's so satisfying to to live with people and find that you can input in all sorts of settings. You know, one of the things we often say is around the kettle, that's where the discipleship happens. That discussion about what films you should watch, that sort of thing, or somebody's really anxious about something and you talking or chatting, whatever, in the kitchen. I, I just think those opportunities outweigh any sense of, well, people can see me um, being real. I think, I just think it, that there's so much hope in in being able to strip back the pretense of, you know, I'm all up together and, you know, it's just, it's, the, the opportunities there are amazing and and I honestly think that, you know, rambling around the boundaries issue is that that I believe in boundaries, but I believe the New Testament, um, you know, if you look at, say, the way the Bible teaches on boundaries, so in the Old Testament, God taught that there were boundaries around what you should eat, what you should do, what you should wear, blah, blah, all those sorts of things. They were quite strict. They were the rules. And the boundaries were articulated as rules. In the New Testament, you get this kind of drift that happens through the sort of focal point of Jesus where he just pushes all the boundaries. He, he does all the things that he wasn't supposed to do. He eats on the days, you know, the moments you're not supposed to eat, the unclean stuff, whatever. And he encourages his disciples to, you know, eat the grain when, you know, on the Sabbath day. And he sort of says, man's made for the Sabbath, not the other way around. And so he's pushing this idea of, well, where are the rules, where are the boundaries? And then Paul eventually says something around, you know, um, you know, you, you can even eat meat that's offered to idols if you are okay about it. And it's more about considering other people and what they, you know, what, where they're weak and vulnerable. And then he says, you know, everything's um, permissible, not everything is beneficial. You know, that sort of, and I think that's a little, an interesting little journey around what is in, what's out, what are, what are the rules around. And I think the emphasis of the New Testament is that your boundary is around protecting your connection to Jesus. And that is what protects you and not a load of kind of sort of slightly false, uh, walls that you put around you thinking that you need this or people shouldn't intrude and in over this area and I personally, Greg and I both feel we would rather push hard into the realm of inconvenience with hospitality for example or um, you know here's the, I just put a couple of quotes on this because it's something we're quite sort of passionate about this guy wrote a book on radical hospitality and he said his, Jesus' example of hospitality demands an unceasingly invitational posture. Do you know, do you think you've got that? Mm -hmm. That we carry with us into our world of work and leisure and our practice of neighbourliness and community service. Hospitality is not something we do, it's an attitude, it's our posture as a church. Now, do you think that's really true of us? I mean, you know, I think that would be an interesting idea if you're leading a church to work out... What does it look like if you've got a load of people who are saying, well, I can only give up Wednesday nights. And, you know, if somebody comes knocking at my door and it's not on a Wednesday, then, you know, I'm, you know it's kind of, that's not really what he's talking about, for example. Uh, Galatians 6, let's do good to everyone, especially to those who have the household of faith. So there's this definite emphasis in the New Testament of, you know, we're supposed to be hospitable and good to one another. Um, and it was supposed to demonstrate what it looks like in the Christian community. It's supposed to look like markedly different 
to the rest of the world in community with Christians, whereas actually in reality, you know, you've got a lot of good people out there who will do a few good things, they'll give their money to the poor, they might volunteer somewhere. How does it look radically different in the Christian community? And I think it has to look like there are less boundaries and less fear around, am I going to be all right? Which is really the underlying question under a lot of people's boundary setting. Don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. I love that verse. And I think, well, you know, it's sort of saying you'll miss out if you don't push out into the sort of realm of inconvenience and risk because you might just miss out on entertaining an angel. Love that idea. I love this quote by Dorothy Day, who was this sort of radical reformer in New York in the turn of the last century. I've long come, since come to believe that people never mean half of what they say, and it's best to disregard their talk and judge only their actions. You know, and if you, I mean, honestly, if you were to look at your life and your lifestyle and say, don't listen to what I'm saying, just look at who, what I do, you know, the lifestyle I have and how different it is, and that should show you what God is really like. Oh! painful <laughs> it's quite challenging isn't it gosh um so these are some of the questions that you know i think people have and we certainly had are we really supposed to take it this far i was really thinking that when we were asked to do it it's like oh is it a bit excessive and a lot of people look at us and think oh i could never do that that's so special and you're amazing to have done this and actually we don't feel genuinely don't feel it's that big a deal having done it for 16 years it isn't. It's just living with people. And if you think about human civilization, last six millennia, however long it's been going on, it's been much more natural for people to live in extended groups in across cultures, tribes and nations everywhere. It's about the last 50 years that we've been obsessed with having our own space. You know, so it's not that weird an idea. It's more weird to live on your own, in your own little tight little boundaries. So I think, are we really supposed to take it this far? How much can we trust God for? You know, that's something, having children in community that you really think about. And how much, you know, are we supposed to be building our nest and increasing our, our sort of monetary capacity to have things now? Greg and I found that actually moving into community meant that we could live much more cheaply. It meant that Greg could stop working full-time and do work for the church for nothing and things like that. So there was that. Um, we actually found that it did, gen because it was so much cheaper, it was about a third of the outgoings of our normal domestic life. So I think we totted it up that our normal outgoings were about 18000 a year just for basic family living, and suddenly they're about seven. So... Um, what do you do with that extra money? And we found that we have we we our old house we then um, converted to a community house, and we had just before we moved into community, we'd taken the step of um, taking some of the equity out of the house that we owned, that we'd built up over ten years, and using it to as deposits for four houses because we wanted to get some rental property so that Greg could stop working and. Could, we could fund him in working, doing Christian work. So we ended up with five houses. <laughs> um, and uh, we were renting them out to students, that sort of thing, and trying to get an income. It was just about working. But when we moved into a community, we decided that we'd make all our houses community houses. So suddenly, um, this sort of there were only three at that point, 
community houses and we suddenly had eight and then from that it's gone to 15 because sometimes when you get a few things happening other people look at it and they think oh could I join in and suddenly there's a bit of a network and I'll tell you a story of one of the houses in a minute because it's a really cool story but um you know I think you know what risks are we willing to take I feel like we've taken a lot of risks um in some ways uh around you know kind of moving into community with with loads of kids and stuff like that but it's at every, I just think, actually, most of the time, the risks aren't as big as we thought they were. And I just think we're very uptight in this, you know, white, middle-class, Western world that we live in. It's, we're very worried. There's so much anxiety. It literally drives me up the wall, anxiety does. We're just, hello. Oh, hi, yes. John. How are you? I'm just looking for someone, but... They Not are in this room. It's nice to see you. You are in this room. Yeah, it's not as big a deal as it seems. Self-preservation versus God's preservation. I really feel like over the years, God has preserved our family life and protected us. And we have thrived and prospered in community in a way that... Um, has been quite amazing and I, I sort of feel like if we'd have been trying to hold on to stuff too hard we wouldn't have experienced something quite extraordinary that I just couldn't see that thing of God saying to me there's something there you can't really see I just think there's so much more in the way that we live and you know live together that is possible than than we can often see but our fear makes us very narrow and very unlikely to take risks what about the children? You know, that was a massive thing for us. Was, you know, is it going to be okay for them? And then, like I said to you, when Russell had that, that meltdown that night, and that was a night where I just thought, oh, have we done something to our kids? Have we made them fearful, you know? But actually, I, you know, he, our son, he, he didn't respond in that way. And, and we, we felt like, yes, his eyes had been opened to something. And, um, but then, you know, the balancing side of it is that they are very broad, resilient people that, that literally have no, no real fear. So none of our kids have an issue with anxiety, not one of them. And I think in this age, that is a, an amazing thing because anxiety is at literally all time high, isn't it? It defines our culture. It's, psychologists call this the age of anxiety. So to raise be able to raise five now six children and who aren't anxious is really you know and I think so it it's it kind of validates itself what if it's a disaster that is the thought that pe you know what if it do people fall out does it all go wrong um that's the question that people sometimes ask us you know we've got these 15 houses we've lived with 180 people so all the houses would have a similar thing of turnover so in all that time, you know, this is probably hundreds and hundreds of people in the last 15 years who've lived in this various settings. And I would say that I could count on one hand, maybe two, the number of times where there's been a, a sort of a falling out and something bad, you know, and where, where say, tempers have gone or, you know, people have had to move out because they've not got along, you know. And I, so I think... It is amazing how peaceful the houses are, and I honestly think it's because it's the Holy Spirit binds people together. And I don't think we really think that 
the unity that God gives us through the Holy Spirit is a real thing. I, I think we think we're all working really hard and that, you know, we're just nice people and that's really what it is. But I think there's a profound reality in the unity of the Spirit. And so a few years ago, we had this, we, this guy come and stay with us and we're part of a... There's this worldwide network called Diggers and Dreamers, which is a network of community houses all around the world. They're not Christians, they're all sorts, so literally every every kind of spirituality and um, they run it, they do a book and Greg for some random reason signed us up to be part of the Diggs and Dreamers network and so every now and again we get very odd phone calls from all sorts of people uh, seeing whether they can come and stay in our community and you know sometimes we say you know the most random phone calls we have are because of Diggs and Dreamers but anyway the head of it came to stay with us one time for a weekend just to have a look at us now he is a Buddhist I think and he was part of a community himself, and he, he just couldn't get over the sense of peace in the communities. He just kept on remarking on it and saying, what is it that holds this thing together? And he was just really taken with it, and he was saying, it's like this sort of common thing that you're, you know, you're holding between you, and he, he had no language for it at all, but he said that his experience was going around the whole country looking at different communities, that they commonly fell out with each other, commonly. So... And I would say that's quite a rare thing, really, in Christian community. Basically, because we've got a bit of momentum in Bristol around community life, and particularly in the churches we're part of, so it's a bit of a known thing. So every now and again, somebody will come and say, oh, I've heard about community, can I come talk to you about it? So the Sweetlands actually came to see us years ago, um, because Greg's sister told them about it so um there's there's you know so there's a bit of a reputation that helps so people come and ask in the churches there there's again there's it's because it's something that's talked about and known about the community houses exist people often say oh i'd like to have a go at living in community and they just um make it known to us and then we go through a bit of a process that very occasionally we find ourselves with needing to recruit um because it's a flat time of year or people aren't asking and we might even advertise it on christian Flatshare community house space in this and so sometimes it's a whole variety of ways that people come to us but on the whole there's a bit of a waiting list or we know of people and they what well, we we have a bit of a process it's very informal it's kind of based on gut instinct really um where somebody will come they might come and have a chat with me and greg for example and we'd have a little talk, and then we'd say, come for tea, so that you can have a look at how it, how it feels in the house, and they can get a sense from you. And then we have a bit of an informal discussion with people in the house and say, what do you think, what do you feel, do you think it could work here? And really, I think what we're looking for is almost like a feel of, would this work here? Have we got capacity for this person? So if it's a vulnerable person, then you're weighing up a little bit like, it's not a total open door. So um, often it feels circus, circumstantial, like, oh, this seems right. This person has ended up at our door. You know, maybe this is God, and we should rise to this. So we've had a couple of refugees who've come through various ways like that, and we've thought, oh, this feels like something we should say yes to. Um, very occasionally somebody, particularly around mental health, will... Um, and often people with mental health issues are looking for a place in community. 
And if they're significant, serious mental health, we have had them in all the community houses, but it does have an effect on the house. So we have to work out, can it, can it, is it going to be okay? Is it going to land on one person's shoulders or is the rest of the house functional enough? You know, if there's more than one person who's got mental health issues in a house, sometimes that's a bit hard. And you, what we say is you have to have a balance of health in the house in order to carry somebody. Um, so those things, we do have those discussions. And we again, we're just sensing a lot of the time, well, this person, you know, one person we had actually nearly destroyed a community house. She had a personality, uh, bipolar, and in her manic phase, she was so full on that she literally, nearly everyone wanted to move out and it was really hard. And so we really, that was about a few years ago, and we sort of really learned a lesson around, you know, that we can't let one person's issues dominate and potentially destroy a, a community. So how, you know, so we, Greg and I act as a bit of a sort of, you know, grandparents of the various other houses. Um, and we have um, Carly Webster, who is our community houses pastor. We pay her one day a week, and she is brilliant at meeting up with people and sort of talking through the process, that sort of thing. So generally, people will approach us, we'll, we'll chat it through, and they'll try it if it seems right, or we'll say, well, when a space comes up, it'll work, we'll, we'll do that. And if it feels like, actually, you're going to wreck a house, we're not, we, we kind of, we, you know... One of the things that we've noticed is that other people, people who will, who've got, who are supporting someone might often say, oh, you should have, you should try the community houses because they're, you know, really good for people with addiction or mental health issues or whatever. And so they, they will approach and they will say, you know, this person really needs support because they come and live in a community house, which seems perfectly reasonable on, on one level. Um, but there is a sense in which um, the person who's referring them has thought to themselves, I couldn't cope with living with this person. <laughs> and so they're thinking, you, you, know, you should go and live there. And that sometimes we do slightly bounce it back and say, you know, the same reasons why you feel you couldn't cope are in play in community houses. And... Um, the only thing that mitigates against that is that because there's more people signing up to a vision, there might be a bit of strength in numbers. But there is this kind of thing of weighing up, well, how will this affect the house and how much capacity is there? So we generally say in a, in a house of eight or ten or so, we say one person is vulnerable and the rest not um, for success, really. With the um, girl with bipolar, did you have to ask her to leave? Um, uh, in, no, we. I mean, we prevailed with it for a very long time. In the end, she moved out. She went back to another country, and then she's uh, she really had almost burnt her bridges and stuff. But actually, she she was away for a year, and then she came back, and um, she went into another community house, and she's done brilliantly there. And it's it's really amazing, lovely story of sort of really redemptive. Um, and actually, that you know, she would say, you know. She gets quite emotional talking about how she can believe she was received back after what she'd been like. So it is, it is really good, yeah. So. The people who get referred to you, mm. like, are, are they local community groups as well? Like, um, like I don't know, like, Rogers or like 
Um, occasionally, but I, generally speaking, referrals come through word of mouth and through relationship. Um, we, Greg and I used to be really good friends with Alan Goddard, who ran the, the crisis centre for a long time. He doesn't anymore. But, so for the first 10 years we were living in our house, we, um, we had said to him that if we have a space and you have somebody coming through your doors that you feel would really benefit from living in this sort of setting, we're open to it. So that was a really good system because he would do a little bit of an assessment of whether this person is going to work and would really respond. So that worked really well. We don't have an official relationship with any of these sort of um, secular bodies because basically we're a Christian community house and rarely, it just doesn't sort of work for secular bodies generally aren't, you know, they've got so many things they're not allowed to do and to actually have an overtly Christian house um, just doesn't seem to work. So um, it's generally referrals through people who've got relationships who know of somebody or something like that. Now another way into community is through um, some of the things that Love Bristol does, are social enterprises like Happy Tat and Treasure and places like that, down in Stokescroft and charity shops and we have volunteers in those settings and again it's like almost like it's a way of seeing could this work for a person if they're volunteers they become a bit known so that happened with um lovely guy called tony who runs a little barber shop in happy tat and um so he came his story is out, out in the public arena so he he came as a through Mentor Me, which is a charity that works um, from the prison and helps people find volunteering opportunities. And he came and was volunteering in Happy Tower, a furniture shop. And um, he had basically just started a chat to Barney, who runs it. And, and um, he had got, he'd been in prison, and he'd, um, while he was in prison, it had been found out he had no papers that had registered him when he was a child. He'd come from Jamaica at the age of six to Bristol and he'd never been registered. So the Home Office were trying to deport him, so he'd become an asylum seeker um, while he was in prison. And so he couldn't earn anything, and um, he had no rights, basically. So he landed in Happy Tat as a volunteer, and all this great story came out. And also, while he'd been in prison, he'd been doing a bit of haircutting, and he'd always wanted to be a barber. So this conversation arose, and we said... Happy Tat said, why don't we set you up as a barber in the corner? He wasn't allowed to earn anything, but you could do free haircuts and the people could pay the charity and blah, blah, blah. So that was really amazing. It was his lifelong dream. So he set up a little barbershop called Second Combing. It's the, <laughs> um, the second coming of Tony, he always said. But, so, um, and it's going brilliantly. And it's now over a year and he's really thrived and flourished. He's set up this little barber shop and as at the same time we sort of said Barney was saying look it would really benefit from living in community so he came and lived with us for a little while we didn't have a long-term place um, and then one of the other community houses given him a place now he can't pay any rent because he's not allowed to earn so the community has sort of stepped up and sort of is paying his rent and um, and the a lovely side of the story is, is that he um, he'd been, he'd basically been passed around the family, not really had a family, left his mother in Jamaica when he was six and his father had come and then just, you know, not really done a great job. 
but the story got out onto the BBC of this, um, you know, the second combing, and, and it was on the BBC World News, and his mum read it in Jamaica. And so she, she recognised his name, which was quite a distinctive name, and she sort of realised that's my son. And she hadn't seen him at all, no contact at all, since the age of six, and she phoned him up. So they're now in regular contact. So it's an amazing story, and he's, yeah, it's really cool. He, we're still we're in process with him, so we're trying to support him through that process. And yeah, he's I we're hoping it will work out. He's a bit like one of those kind of Windrush people who, you know, they br- were brought over and never registered, but have totally been a, you know, he's he's got a Bristolian accent. <laughs> so, so yeah, that so that's another route in that came, he came into community through through those sort of little gateways. So, and how does that leadership structure work? So you've mentioned the mm. house leaders. Yeah. Every house have like a nominated. Yeah. And how are they decided and stuff? Well, that? we tend to do it, sort of sort that out. Um, me and Greg and Carly through discussion. Um, we find that it really works well if there's a couple and a family. A family brings a kind of rhythm to a shared house that is sort of gentle and really helpful, a helpful rhythm. And when you have children in a house, it kind of brings this this sort of order almost to to family life and um, so that it that works quite well <clears throat> a couple of the houses have got leaders that have just been nominated and we, we ask people would you mind being the leader so um, and you know it might be two different people working together and various people sort of you know, might have a little stint at it and then you know they they stop for a while but we're really looking for people who are um, who are able to sort of have a bit of breadth and strength to them to cope with the ups and downs of it all, take a bit of a spiritual lead and be able to disciple people and, and just, you know, pull family together and stuff like that. So, But because we keep it really simple, you know, eating together every night, shared chore and a kind of and a, some kind of house meeting, it's not like a huge thing. It's more just taking responsibility for the bills and that sort of thing and in it on the whole it works and actually what we feel is that it's an amazing fast track of leadership training in a way that's quite different to any other form of leadership training you know it's kind of every day on the spot being resilient being all sorts of things can happen and um you know it yeah it, it is a bit of a it's amazing training and often it produces these really rounded people that you have just a real respect for, you know, that they've managed to sort of do that and do their other life and stuff like that. So that works really well. How does it work with the shared meals? Do you, do you all eat the same thing together? Yeah. Yeah, basically we, we um, so we eat together every night and um, we, so we have a shared purse for food, food and bills and rent and, um, some people do the shop, we usually use Sainsbury's and do it, order it in, and people will just cook with what is in the house. Um, sometimes there's a bit of planning that goes on, but to be honest, most people don't really, they just respond. One of the things we've noticed is that people learn really quickly how to cook for 18 people, mm-hmm. and within a few weeks, they don't even think it's a big deal. And I think that's a brilliant skill. <laughs> so, you know, my daughter's just done it, just just before I left, she just quickly pulled everything together, left it on the stove because she can't be there at tea to serve it, and said, could you put that on? And she just made this you know, meal for 20 people. So it's really, that is a good skill. 
and we just keep it simple and keep it fresh and uh, yeah we we try and one of the values that we try and hold to is that we're not we're not you know we're trying to keep it simple and and sort of not spend too much money and um, so we, we we just sort of say fresh fruit and veg and meat and stuff like that but you know it's fairly yeah really not a big deal you know so and it's good and, and it makes a big difference we say that um, there's six opportunities to eat together every week and we say that people need to commit to being there for at least four because um, you can tell very quickly you quickly feel like you're moving out of community if you don't see people around the meal table and so we um, yeah we, we just say really you need to be there at least four out of those six times otherwise one of the things we've noticed is that if you if you are not present, you don't necessarily feel it, but the people in the house who are left behind do, and they feel like there's this stranger sort of floating past them <laughs> who um, they don't relate to, but you might be just busily getting on with your life. And so, yeah, so we, we really try and encourage people to think, you know, what is it like for the other people? One of the things that we do on, you know, related to that is... Um, we do this thing in our house called What Am I Like to Live With, which um, strikes fear into the heart of many people when, when, they, when they hear that phrase. But basically, um, we, it emerged out of... We had a, a, somebody who'd come out of addiction living with us years and years, 15 years ago probably now, and he, uh, he'd come from an AA setting, Alcoholics Anonymous setting, and he had this funny little phrase, take that to the meeting... Um, <laughs> because it come from his AA setting, because you took your issues to the meeting, and he used to say it about the house. He'd oh, take that to the meeting all the time, and and it, it it ended up while he was there with us that we would we just it, it slightly evolved into this sort of thing where at the meeting you got to hear what the issues were that you were causing in the house. And out of that evolved this thing that we called what am I like to live with because we thought actually, you know, when do you get to hear genuine feedback from people who care about you, who have to live with you day in, day out, um, genuine, courageous feedback of what, about what you're really like, you know, and it, not just the big stuff but the small irritating things you might do where you're pressing people's buttons or you do things you're a bit oblivious to, your blind spots. Mm -hmm. And we realised that there was just something about living together that was literally there was no other way that some of these things would show up. And so we um, gradually developed this thing where one person would get to hear, be on the hot spot, <laughs> and they would get feedback from everyone in the room who would go around and we'd always say, say something good first. <laughs> and people obviously really labour the good stuff because they're scared about saying the bad stuff in a few seconds time and they so they'll really say nice things about the person and then usually I have to say and what do you find hard <laughs> or is there anything that really presses your buttons about this person um, and and people are sort of they're reluctant but often there is something that they've been storing up or thinking like oh you always leave your porridge saucepan filled with water on the soaking when you go to work and you think that somebody else is just going to come and wash it for you every single day and it's been irritating them, you know, and um, they would never say it because we're very English and we don't want to. But 
what I say to people who are terrified of that experience is, if somebody is thinking something about you, they are going to be thinking about it about you. And whether or not they say it, it is there in your relationship. And it can be really toxic. And wouldn't you rather know? And I sort of say, you've got to develop a bit of curiosity. How are people experiencing me? What am I like to live with? And genuinely want to know. Because it doesn't go away by just not being told it at all. It just sort of festers. And... Um, so we have, we've had some amazing evenings where people have heard some incredibly infer, affirming things and then some really hard things. And I just remember one um, girl who was hearing some stuff that was hard and she sort of ran out of the room crying. <laughs> and then she came back in a few minutes later and said, tell me some more. Oh, and then wow. <laughs> it was like a real moment of sort of courage for her that she stepped up into and it was, it was brilliant. And people, you know, there have been times where people have wept, but they've also really appreciated it. And people in the house get quite good at giving this really honest, courageous feedback that is probably a bit unique because I feel like the only person who does that with me is my mum. You know, my, you know when I was growing up, she doesn't really anymore do that, or my husband. But in life, who does that? You know, says to you, do you know what? You're really um, oblivious to other people's needs. Or, you know, when you come home from work and you're in a grump, you can be quite rude sometimes or something like that. Or, you know, you're, you know, you're so loud that you never even wonder whether what people are thinking around you just dominate the room or something like that. It's like, oh, that's quite hard to hear. But wouldn't you rather know if everyone was thinking it, you know? So... Anyway, so that's been a really interesting part of the journey for us. <laughs> How do you, first of all, make it a safe enough space for people to, to, do, that. to do that and receive mm. it? And then how do you cover those that are going out crying and being like, oh, yeah. my goodness? I think we just talk about it really openly and say, so all the things I've just said, I'll say, you know, we really, we've got to make it, we've got to be courageous and want to hear this stuff because it's happening anyway. But I think, honestly, that people, that the, the general tenor of the house is very loving and, and caring, and people do go the extra mile and care for each other, and so it is already a safe place. But if ever we felt that it was pushing into something unsafe, we would just, the, that's what the leadership is for. We would talk about it. We might talk about it separately from the meeting on, with individuals. And, I mean, with her, we, we would... We process some stuff with her. We often would process outside of the meeting, just me and Greg. Um, but it's yeah, and, and I think in the setting of that meeting, it is it you make it safe by saying first we say good stuff, you say the hard stuff, and then we end up praying for each other and prophesying over each other, that sort of thing. So it's kind of yeah, there's a very intentional safe space around it, but also a kind of brave space that probably I, I so again it's I feel like we do tend to create safe spaces more instinctively and not dangerous spaces that are risk taking so I feel like our, our area to push into is not the how do we make it safe for each other yeah. I think we kind of we got that down you know it's like you know, this doctor said to me, or somebody said to me not that long ago about, we were talking about healing in the church, totally other subject, and they were saying, you really got to also prepare people for dying. 
um, and healing not to work. And I just thought, you know, we are good at that side of things. We're good at the thing that is looking after one another and walking through difficulties on the whole. If we, you know, most of these sort of fairly compassionate settings are like that. We're not good at the risky bit. And that's the bit that we we feel a bit envisioned around pushing <laughs> pushing into, I suppose. So, yeah, oh, I feel like I'm running out of steam. I thought I might just I might share share with you. Oh, we've probably said a lot of these things. Here, look at this. Have you seen this quote by Shane Shane Claiborne? Do you know Shane Claiborne? Yes. So he wrote a book called Jesus for President and Irresistible Revolution. Brilliant books, and um, he we're friends with him actually, and he is really a good. He lives with the poor and um, in Philadelphia in America. I asked participants who claim to be strong followers of Jesus whether Jesus spent time with the poor. Nearly 80% said yes. Later in the survey, I sneaked in another question. I asked the same group of strong followers whether they spent time with the poor and less than 2% said they did. And I learned a powerful lesson. We can admire and worship Jesus without doing what he did. We can applaud what he preached for and stood for without caring about the same things. We can adore his cross without taking up ours. And I had come to see that the great tragedy of the church is not that rich Christians do not care about the poor, but that they do not know the poor. And I think, yeah, I mean, it's really challenging. And I think, you know, I think that there are lots of really good signs that the church has sort of waked up, woken up to the, the issues around that. But I think, yeah. I think I find that challenging, you know. I find that we tend to retreat really easily into um, safety, <laughs> just without even thinking about it, you know. And so probably we, we, the call of the spirit will always push us, I think, into vulnerability and risk and being more radical than we instinctively are. So let me tell you a little story of combining one of the things of our values in love bristol particularly is that we want to do um we want to care for the poor we also really love creativity and seeing things really um artistically we love that but our other thing is that we really want to um le lead lives with the in the power of the holy spirit and um you know particularly pursuing things like healing and the prophetic has been really a big deal for us and one of the reasons is that um, traditionally, Christians are, have often encamped in different areas with, you know, the radical sort of social justice warriors will rarely be the ones who are wanting to be full of the spirit. There might even be a bit of tension between those two camps, the, the social justice people saying, you know, you won't, you know, you're just blissed up and you don't care about anything. And the, the charismatics might be saying, well, you know, it's all very worthy, but where's the power? And we felt that, um, we just felt a real sense to, of being called into the sort of place of saying, you know, can we just do all of it? So can we do radical acts of kindness, but in the power of the spirit? No, it's not, it, you know, there's lots of people who would say that now, but we used to have this thing, we want it all. We want to <laughs> have a go at all of them. So one of the things that we really um, wanted to do is, is face that thing of living amongst the poor and having houses where, the, where there are poor around and, so Stokescroft is partly why we have, we've ended up in that area with some houses because we felt that there was, the poor were there and we need to live amongst them and work amongst them. So we've got jobs amongst them and things like that. So there was um, 
But we also want to follow prophetic words and follow the call of the Spirit. And if we hear him saying something, we want to be able to actively, radically do something actual, not just have a worship time <laughs> in response to what he's saying. So we've sort of sort of list, tried to work out what does it mean to listen to the voice of the Spirit, particularly in prophecy, and how does that all work. So this little story is actually now, um, this house is now 10 years old, but we've got a house called Unity Home down on um, Ashley Road in St Paul's. And 10 years ago, a friend of ours was living next door to it, and it was a crack den, basically. It was all boarded up, and it was metal windows, and, and it was known around Bristol, it was in the papers frequently for squats and to be a squat where crack was being dealt and it was a party house and it was awful and it looked awful, it looked derelict and um, our friend was living next door and he, one night he felt God say to him, I want that house next door and he felt led to get up out of his, there was a party going on a sort of you know wild party and he got he felt led to get up out of his bed and climb into the garden next door with a bucket of water that he 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 basically sprinkled over the garden and he sort of prayed and gave the house to God <laughs> sort of you know and blessed it and then he said to Greg um my husband he said well you should really try and get that house because that house is a crack den but it needs to be for God sort of thing and so that happened and then not long afterwards, um, basically, a friend of ours sent us, uh, a few different things happened. A friend of ours sent us a dream that they'd had. And in this dream, they um, had seen us, me and Greg and our friend Ruth, who started Love Bristol with us, seen us in this derelict house. Um, and the thing that was distinctive in the dream was that this house had no bathrooms in it. And then we were given a large sum of money, and that was the dream. And they said... Well, it feels like a God dream. I'll give it to you. Um, and so we, uh, but the other thing in the dream was that, um, that happened was that me and Greg had this beaten up American car and we gave it to a church in the dream. So random dream. And then, um, but when they sent us the dream, the thing that was really striking to us was the car thing because we had lived in America 10 years before and when we left America, we'd had an old um, Dodge, a beaten up old Dodge car, and we gave it to the youth worker in the church. And no one knew that that had happened. And we, so we just thought, oh, that feels like, oh, okay. So what does that mean about the other aspect of the dream? So that, that dream had happened. And Dylan, our friend, had said this about the house. And then through the grapevine, basically Greg heard that this house had come up for auction. And um, he was like, should we just go to the auction? And we just had all these feelings around it and everything. And, and basically, we just decided we'd go to the auction because of the dream. And, um, but we didn't have any money, and we couldn't buy it. But Greg said to the auctioneer, we haven't got any money at the moment, but if it doesn't sell tonight, um, then basically we will bid £450,000 for this house um, but we haven't got it right now. And so if it doesn't sell tonight, then we, that's, that's our offer. And uh, we were like, oh, okay. <laughs> and we didn't have any plan particularly at all. But as we were driving, driving to the auction, we remembered something about this house because it had been in the papers quite a lot two years before when the police had boarded it up. 
And the, what they'd done when they boarded it up was they removed all the bathrooms <laughs> to stop people squatting in it. And so we suddenly remembered as, you know, all these things were coming together. This, there's this dream with this house, derelict house with no bathrooms in it and a sum of money. And blah, blah, blah. and so we went to the um, auction and we sat at the front of the auction and it, the bidding went up to 440000 And we were like, okay, so it's going to sell. And then, um, and then it stopped at 440000 The auctioneer basically said, well, we've had a prior bid of 450000 so I'm closing it at, the, at that. And then... Uh, that was the end of it, and, and then we looked at each other and we were like, oh. <laughs> and we were like, oh, what are we going to do? So we basically we had he gave us he said you've got we're going to put it back in the auction in a month's time. You've got till till about three weeks' time to see what you can do, and so we then wrote to about six people we knew who had money and said. <laughs> Um, this has ha happened. We didn't tell them the whole story, but we just said we would. We really feel that this is this could be a house for God, and that it would be redemptive. But, and basically, one of the six people said, "I'll I'll lend you a deposit, ninety grand, to pay back." And then um, they're well-off people. And then another um, group of people said, "We will give you a mortgage if you can get the deposit. Then we'll give you a mortgage." on this property and um so that's what they did so we basically secured it and three weeks later we had the keys to this 41 roomed house oh 41 roomed house like so <laughs> totally it was a mansion so it's down on ashley road so 41 rooms but it was literally inside when you walked into the front door there were there was rubble everywhere because the squatters had kicked walls down They'd had fires inside the house. It was as bad as you can imagine. There were no bathrooms, no kitchen. It was totally derelict. There was this graffiti on the wall saying, you will all die and stuff like that. <laughs> there was no electricity. It was that freezing winter where it was the coldest winter in Bristol for, you know, before or since for many years. And it was absolutely freezing in there. And basically in the next four months, that was November, by March, um, it was habitable. And we, we didn't have any money to do it up, but we realised that over the, the next four months, we basically just kept moving a lot of things around and borrowing from one account to pay another and all sorts of things. And, in, and we had a little bit of money given us, and, and basically we managed through a lot of volunteering. We cleared it, we built the walls up, we replastered, we put a kitchen in, we put three bathrooms in, and we made it habitable, and then... Um, and it was getting around to about February, and basically it was re it was ready to, for somebody to move in. And at this time, a couple had just joined Woody's, and um, we were thinking we need a family. And um, I just thought oh, they would be really ideal. They were quite kind of young and you know um, risk taking. And so um, we asked them would they do it, and they were kind of like interested but she Lillian was just really nervous because it was moving her three family three small boys into St Paul's um, into a house that used to be a crack den that doesn't inspire with confidence so <laughs> what happened then is that one night Lillian had two dreams and in the first dream she um, she saw a map of St Paul's and there was um, in the middle of this map was this uh, gateway and the a sort of cra a sort of top a topping was being put onto this gate post, and when it 
was put on, this light sort of shed out and threw light over this map of St Paul's and she realised that in the centre of this map was the address of this place and she woke up and she said to her husband, oh, um, I feel like God's, you know, God's going to really use that house that we've been asked to as a light to the neighbourhood and then she fell back asleep and, in the, in the set, and she had another dream and in this dream her wedding ring slipped off her finger and spun in front of her eyes. <laughs> And um, on the inside of her wedding ring, in real life, is written um, Isaiah 55, 1, something like that. Isaiah 57, 12. Oh, no. Yeah, that happened. And this white van drove into the dream with 5, 7, 12 on it. And then this wedding ring spun it. And it, basically, she has got on the inside of her wedding ring and as Matt as well, the verse from Isaiah which says, you will be called the restorer of broken dwellings. And so she basically, <laughs> she sort of woke up, she woke up in tears and said, oh, I think, though, I just think we're meant to be there and to carry on the restoration of this house. And so they moved in and, and uh, they took 10 people with them and, and it grew, it's got 24 people now, but, um, and they finished the restoration. And now... Well, I, I, I actually have, if I can find it, I might be able to find it. Um, they, it, it is amazing, really, what, what it looks like now. I wonder if I can, yeah, so let's see if it comes up. So that's called, and then, you know, one day we were, we were just looking at, um, it might be up here. Some, oh, look, that, so that is basically original unity home garden and then two years later that is the garden they had a wedding there and um this is the inside so that's that's the so that's where they had the wedding that's the lounge that is what it looked like through the whole house so it is amazing unity home amazing story and it to us it feels like it kind of epitomizes this sort of sense of God calling his people into the where the poor are, to engage with it in that way, but also, you know, the sort of hearing the call of the spirit and the prophetic, and we've really tried to listen to prophetic words, and, you know, so one year we had two prophetic words about fresh bread on Stokes Croft, and we were really spiritualising it. We were talking about, you know... Um, well, it must mean that, you know, the bread of life and all this sort of stuff. And then suddenly we just sort of said, what about we're just meant to have a bakery? And so we did. And basically we started a bakery in Stokescroft, and that's Elemental Bakery, which is on the junction in Stokescroft, and it's, it's amazing. So we, we felt like, oh, you know, we don't want to be over sort of naive about the prophetic, because sometimes it is just something spiritual, but, it, you know, sometimes it's worth taking a risk and doing something literally I think so yeah that's probably enough I think enough talking from me <laughs> so good thank you so much oh, it's okay it's been can I ask two really quick yeah of course yeah um, firstly how did you adopt when you were living in community was that yeah mm. well it we didn't intend to adopt originally but basically um one of the things we ended up um it's about Five years ago, we, about eight years ago, um, our original house that we used to live in, we had an extension built, and the builder was 
basically struggling with addiction issues and we ended up being drawn into his life and supporting him and his partner and their new baby and they they had a real struggle around addiction and they were in and out of it a little bit and we were sort of in a supporting role and um, basically it all went a bit wrong and the social services were going to take um, the child away from them and we said well why don't you come and the mother and the child why don't you both come and live with us and see if we can help you stabilize and um, see what we can do to help and and so they did um, but she the mother just you know for various reasons didn't manage to um, stay clean and the social services were going to put the little girl up for adoption but by that point she'd been living with us for six months and we just had to work out what we should do but we felt that if she had a home with us and one option was that we could we could take her on so we actually um, I mean it was an, a, a hard decision because to be honest our kids were nearly grown up and um, you know I sort of thought that bit of my life was done and uh, but we, we decided that we were, we would and um, so five years ago we, we, we became actually special guardians which is a slightly different form of adoption where you keep the relationship with the mother so um, she lives with us and she is you know she is to all intents and purposes adopted but we also still see her mum regularly so that was yeah that was interesting it, it only really happened because we were living in community and we probably wouldn't have done it if we hadn't have been but there is something about living in community that allows you to do it, it can, when it works well it can make it give you the capacity to do things you wouldn't be able to do because there's this sort of slightly shared load so although she's in our family um it does help that there are 10 other adults who can babysit and things like that whereas I I was out of the babysitting circus and I didn't want to go back into it you know so so yeah yeah well they wouldn't let us foster we would we had been looking at fostering and no they don't really um you have to have a contained thing where you can't have loads of people coming in and out and loads of people with a front door key for adopting and fostering so um, we're trying to work out whether we can enable fostering and adoption in some of the community houses. If there's like a coach house, like there is at the back of 87 Unity Home, there's, so we're wondering whether that could be developed as a place for fostering and adoption. But yeah, so they, but I think in these circumstances, it was so unusual. The social worker was kind of trying to work out what on earth to make of it all. But when, she, when it came to it, it was so obviously the best option for the little girl that, they kind of had to broaden it, you know, and it was interesting because Christian values aren't always welcome in the adoption and fostering scene, so, but she was a good good person, the social worker, and we just sort of worked it through, really, so, yeah, it was... My other question, I, it suddenly occurred to me there are no guys here, Yeah. and I went, oh, I wonder if that is, I mean, from your community houses, is that... Is that because uh, my impression is women sometimes find it easier to mm. live outwardly? I don't know if that's fair. Well, or interestingly, that, that I'd say the other way around. Oh, I think women that. tend to be more controlling about the space uh, and the home, okay. and they want to make it nice in a certain yes. way, and men don't really care a lot of the time. <laughs> we don't hear about it, they're always living they, I think what, one thing is interesting we find is that women are often the ones that tend to want to go and form a home somewhere yes. and they want that space, whereas 
men love the camaraderie of being together and they sometimes one of the things we've found is that when people get married and move out of community often the guys find it harder they've loved the kind of banter and all that sort of thing whereas the woman is desperate to get her little nest set up you know without wanting to stereotype people too much it does seem to be more often the, the way of things so um yeah i don't know why but women are very present in a lot of areas of the church aren't they we just carried the whole thing for the last two millennia. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't got the credit for it, but really. 